You're listening to audio from Plank Grove Harvest Church located in Crossville, Tennessee. If you'd like more information about our church and its various ministries, please visit our website at www.plankgroveharvest.org. Working on Psalm 119. We have been working on that for a while. And uh, I think we're going to wrap it up today. We're not going to spend a lot of time. In it. We're gonna, I'm going to mention a couple verses there. But like I said, I hope you can see the direction I'm going and, and tag along. How about that? Psalm 119, 139. I'm taking it a little bit out of context because it's really uh, Christ. Uh, uh, Christ says a very similar thing about, I'm sorry, Psalm 69, verse 9. Christ uses that verse later on the cross, right before he goes to the cross when he's at the temple. Zeal for my father's house has consumed me. I got a, I got a, um, a devotion for you there by the door if you want to read that one. But it's similar, goes along with this. Psalm 119 and 139 says, My zeal has consumed me. This individual man who's had a change in attitude and a change in direction in his life. And then 162 says, I rejoice at your word as one who finds great treasure. So when he reads the word, he just finds nugget after nugget. I, I read about this man this week. He was bird watching in England and he saw a glint on the ground and he found a gold coin. And then when he was picking up that gold coin, he found another gold coin. He found 168 gold coins. And, uh, of course, the government took it from him. Good old England, merry old England. But, but uh, it was worth over a million dollars. You know, he started searching for the treasure, found more treasure. It became, he actually found the first one, found the second one, and then went home and got a, uh, a metal detector. And that's how he found the rest. That's, what, that's the desire of our heart. That's how it should be as we look for God's word. We look into his word. We should be like metal detecting for those gold coins that's throughout the word there. Great peace have those who love your law and nothing causes them to stumble. Nothing. Good things don't cause them. Bad things. Temptations. Lusts materialism, desires, those things don't cause them to stumble. Negative things, cancer, sickness, old age, decrepitness, whatever, false words that they shouldn't have said, whatever, they don't cause them to stumble. They keep on trucking. So we've gone over Psalm 119 with this focus of just this one individual guy coming from um, a belief in Christ and beginning to grow through that process. And there's much more going on in Psalm 119. Read it. The more times you read it, the more you're going to dig out of it, the more gold coins you're going to find in it. But, uh, but for about this guy, we start with his acknowledgement for a need of our Savior to asking God to remove uh, these negative things, these sinful deals in his life, to replacing those sinful things with positive things, a new, a new life, a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things become new be transformed by the renewal of your mind. He's got a new mind. After that comes this revival. This, these spiritual truths begin to come to light. In that revival, he starts to try to bring old problem-solving devices into his new Christian walk, his new believing, I say Christian, but his new believing walk, believing in God the Father for, for uh, his care for him and his guidance for him. And, uh, and after that, as he tries to use these worldly things to fix uh, his problems, God uses affliction to, to help him identify that he's using affliction to draw him closer to himself, and that causes him to have rest even in affliction. We can have affliction, and we can still have our faith in Christ. We can still have our faith that God has the ultimate plan, the sovereign overall plan that keeps an eye, that keeps direction, that keeps control, that does all these things for us. And ultimately, the man reaches a point of rejoicing as he learns to use affliction to find rest. He comes into rejoicing or zeal, where he has a zeal for his, 
for his God uh, to go to the temple, to, to rejoice in the good things, to recognize God's hand on his life. He recognizes that uh, it's a God who cares for him, and that's known as zeal. So we see the word zeal in the Bible. And again, I kind of covered some things in that, in that little handout there, if you want to get that one, about zeal. I mean, there can be improper zeal. Saul was zealous in, um, before he was Paul. He was Saul. And he was very zealous. He was zealous to the point that he was going into people's houses, and it says it's causing havoc in the church amongst the way, the people of the way. He was going in there and finding out, well, you worship Christ, and bringing them out and having them brought before the Sanhedrin and stoned. And then the opposite end of that is a lukewarmness or a lack of zeal, which we could see in Revelation chapter 3, where we see, um, you know, you're neither hot nor cold, the church of Laodicea. So rather than being hot or cold, I'll just spit you out of my mouth. I don't want you. So we can have zeal that's misplaced or we can have a, a lack of zeal like a new believer and over time maybe zealous at first but his zeal weakens as the things of the world encroach into his life and he gets interested in other things and it leads him away from that zealousness so what do you think uh as far as you um being a person when i think of a zealous person do I look at that in like in a positive light, or do I think of street preacher guy who's yelling at the cars going by? I mean, he has a purpose. He's, he's doing what he feels like God's called him to do, but in a way, I look at the guy, I'm like, oh, look at that wacko. He's very zealous, but is he effective? Maybe he is, maybe he isn't. I, you know, that's a judgment call on my part, but a lot of times we think of zealous people as weird people. But God calls us to a perfect zeal in his word and we need to discover what that is so that we can accomplish perfect zeal i'm not dogging street preaching there is a purpose in street preaching there's a number of people that have been saved by street preachers um but we just as you in your mind look at that a lot of times we're very especially in america we're so always trying to present a particular image of ourselves how we look or who we are or whatever i want people to think that i'm rich and famous when actually i'm poor and infamous you know, uh, so we, we tend to, to not do things that we feel put us on the spot. So, you know, we have an opportunity to speak publicly and we like, you know, I don't, I don't know. I don't want people to think I'm weird. So we don't. So in your mind, as you measure zeal, as I'm telling you what zeal is, I want you to try to get a different angle on it than just the John the Baptist. John the Baptist was a very zealous man, but he was a very unusual man. He was a man that lived in the wilderness. He wore a camel hair coat. He ate locusts and honey. And that's an unusual guy. But he was so zealous uh, for doing the work of, of God that he didn't really care how he looked. He had a mission and he was called to it and he was going to do it regardless of the response of the people or regardless of what people thought of him. So I want you to think in your mind, how can I get that spirit in me, the spirit of John the Baptist, without wearing the camel hair coat? After I read that about John the Baptist years ago, I was like, man, I'd like to have a camel hair coat. But then I thought, you know, people think I'm weird anyway. So ain't no sense in adding to the problem there. <laughs> so these steps to the path of eternal life, they come with concentrated effort. They only come by directed effort in the individual to seek the Lord while he can still be found or to seek the Lord with your whole heart. It takes effort. It takes effort in knowing the word, recognizing that you're in this constant battle with the world and the flesh and the devil that's constantly picking away at you, constantly tempting you and drawing you away, and uh, constantly at odds with the inner spiritual man, attempting to get him to stray from his path of life and godliness. So if we were to look through God's word and see examples of zealous, I'll start with men first, but zealous men, we could start way back. We hear that Enoch was a zealous man. 
he was the one that was kind of pointing out some things that were going on with the 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 sons of God and, and the, and the uh, daughters of men. And Moses was a zealous man. Noah was a, a preacher of righteousness, the Bible says. He was a zealous man. He's making a boat in a desert area in a place that's never seen rain. But it takes some zeal. It takes some drive to do that. Um, Samuel, Gideon, when he, when he gets those guys to, I mean, he's convincing a bunch of guys to go against a huge trained army and he's like all right was well, this going to take 300 of us now that takes some zeal that takes some charisma to pull that off but then as you keep going you know samuel elijah elisha ezra and nehemiah the energy that they show to go against a nations that would see them destroyed and they're like we're going to build this temple we're going to build this wall and um, and you know nehemiah is zealous very similar to christ where he goes out and he sees people trading on the sabbath and he begins to whip them and drive them away very similar to what we see christ do in his zeal uh, and then in the New Testament, of course, we have John the Baptist, John the Baptizer. He's not a Baptist as much as a Baptizer, but uh, he's not the father of the Baptist movement. He's John, the man that baptized people. But he's uh, very zealous. He speaks loudly. He speaks the truth. Then we have Jesus, very zealous. He goes into the temple, drives men out with a whip of cords. He's you got to think about that. If one guy comes in here, we have ever how many people we have this morning, and he starts brandishing a whip around, you know, we, we put Zach and, and William Strong on him, and then whatever, we'll put Hunter, you can tackle him at the knees. And we got the guy down, right? But those people were so unrighteous, and Christ was so righteous that when he goes in there to whip them, he drives them in front of them. There was hundreds of people in there, not just 60s of people. And because of his zeal, because of his righteousness, they just fall before him just like these, these mysteries of the Old Testament, these miracles of the Old Testament where, you know, Samson or, or one of David's mighty men kills 3,000 or 300 men in one shot, you know. I mean, when you, it says, uh, how does it say? It's in Proverbs about a wicked man runs when no one pursues, but a righteous man is bold as a lion. That's how it is. When you're zealous, when you're righteous, you know you're righteous, God is working through you, you'll stand up to countless men. The number of men isn't the issue. And so that you ladies don't think that I'm just talking about men. So we had, so we had uh, John, Jesus, Paul, and the other disciples and others. And, in, and for the ladies, you know, we have Sarah, who's very, who's very zealous for God, training up her, her children in righteousness. We have Deborah who's encouraging this guy named Barak in the book of Judges, encouraging him. See, she's like, I'm a, I'm a lady. I'm not supposed to lead in this. He's like, well, I, I'm afraid. She's like, listen, dummy, get out there and go beat these guys. And he goes and does it. But, but Deborah is the zealousness behind Barak. She's the one that pushes him to accomplish the mission of God there. Uh, Lydia, the seller of purple. Martha, you know, Mary, they're all zealous for God. They're they're. Devout Elizabeth is a zealous woman for God. She's devout. She's desiring to do God's will. Um, I can't remember the one. What's, who's the older lady at the temple there that prophesies over Christ when he's first born? That lady is another one. She'd waited there for 80 years. She said she was a, a widow for a majority of her life, except for six years of her life she was a widow. But she, she prayed and, and did alms there at the, at the temple for uh, up to 80 years old. And uh, she's very zealous for God, wanting to do his work. There's women today, very zealous women. One of my favorites is Kay Arthur. I strongly suggest ladies find Kay Arthur books and read them. That's a zealous woman right there. She's started a seminary and is desiring that other people would find the Messiah, that other people would become ministers of the gospel. Nancy Lita Moss, another good one. Um, 
Priscilla Schreier is more of a modern one, very zealous, has a word from the Lord, speaking out, confident in what she knows in the word. So women are not exempt, is my point, from being obedient to the call of zealousness. So what makes these people that God writes about in his word, that he sends this message to prophets of old to write down in his book, what makes these people more zealous than another? How come this guy gets mentioned? Uh, how come Elijah gets mentioned, and then we find out that there's 7,000 others that haven't bowed the knee to Baal? How come he gets the, the, you know, the Medal of Honor and the rest of them don't get anything? It's just how it is. All of God's people are called to be zealous. If we're of his kingdom, we're called to be ministers of the gospel and to go out and to do his will. And so as a zealous believer, we should be an active believer. And we'll, we'll see how that works there. So there's plenty of room for other people to join the zeal team, zeal team six. There's plenty of people to join that team. As many as are called... These are the ones that are called to be on the team of God, on God's team of zeal, zealous spreaders of the gospel. So let's look at these traits of these Old and New Testament ones, and then we'll talk about us in this day. So I got five traits that I came up with. There could be more. I might have missed one. These were the ones that were revealed to me in reading and, and study of this. First is zealous believers are willing to suffer death in any way God sees fit in order to further his kingdom. And you're like, well, way to start with the best one. i got to start with the, the bad one first. We'll work our way to the more funner ones. But the, this is rough. But they're willing to suffer death in any way that God sees fit. John the Baptist has bold speeches. I mean, the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin had an awful lot of power. They come out to him in the wilderness to see what he's doing. He's baptizing people for repentance. This is a different thing than they've seen before. People were baptized into the Jewish faith before that. You're, a, you're a, a Gentile, a good whatever, a Syrian, and you come to Israel and you want to have a business selling whatever you sell, and you have to get into the temple in order to um, have a market there. They're not going to buy from you because you're an alien. So you go, and you go and become a, a Jew by baptism. You say, I, I promise to follow all your rights. I'm not going to... You know, worship on the, I'm only going to worship on the Sabbath. I'm not going to work then. Um, I'm not going to eat these meats and so on. Okay, and they baptize you, and now you're a Jew by baptism. So they had seen baptism before, but John's baptizing them with a new baptism, a baptism of repentance from sin. He's pointing out that a lot of the stuff that the Pharisees are saying is made-up laws and rules that have nothing to do with following God. He's like, come and be baptized for these sins of your spirit, this sin of, of murder in your heart where you're thinking evil things about another person or adultery of your mind where you're, you're looking at other people with lust in your, in your heart even though you haven't acted on it, things like that. And he's baptizing them in that. And when the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin come up there, they have the power to haul John off. But they come out there, and he calls them for exactly what they are. He calls them a brood of vipers and dead men and things like that, ones that are leading other people astray. And he, he really gives them a hard time. He stands up to them, not fearing death. Jesus in Luke 9, I wanted to read this one to you in uh, Luke 9, 43. Luke 9. So Jesus is telling his his disciples about his coming his coming death his coming walk to the cross and it says uh starting in verse 43 it says 
And they were all amazed at the majesty of God. But while everyone marveled at the things which Jesus did, he said to his disciples, let these words sink down into your ears, for the Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was hidden from them, so they did not perceive it, and they were afraid to ask him about the saying. Uh, skip down there to uh, 49. Now John answered and said, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we forbade him because he does not follow with us. Jesus said to him, Do not forbid him, for he who is not against us is on our side. Now it came to pass when the time had come for him to be received up that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. What does that mean? It means it's time. It's time the Passover's coming. It's time for him to be sacrificed for all of mankind. And it says that he set his face. In fact, when Peter comes to him later and he's explaining to Peter, um, Peter, I got to go. I got to go be, be killed. He's like, oh, no, good Lord, no, you don't, that's not what you need to do. Come. He's like, behind me, Satan. Get back. Shut your face. Get back here. This is where I'm going. I don't fear death because by my death, all men can be saved. So he had finished telling his disciples that he was to be crucified. And in that, he just follows that right up. He doesn't try to postpone it or put it off or, or start weeping and tell him, oh, man, I'm just I'm terrified. He just goes. He goes. That's part of it. Paul in Acts 21, 10 and 11, a prophet named Agabus comes to him. Paul is killing it. Everywhere he goes, people are getting saved. Churches are being planted. Goes, goes. Gets stoned here a little bit. Gets beaten there a little bit. Gets put in jail here a little bit. Gets shipwrecked there a little bit. But all the time, he's just always going forward preaching the gospel to the Gentile nations that they might be saved. And a man, a prophet, they call him, he's mentioned a couple times in Acts, named Agabus, comes to him and says, Paul, I, I have to show you something. And he takes a cord off of Paul's coat, and he says, the cord from this man's coat that this came from is going to use to tie his hand. He's going to take him to Rome, and he's going to be killed. He said, if you go back to Jerusalem, they're going to kill you. And this is what Paul says. He says, I'm ready not only to be bound but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. He's not worried about death. He, re he sees the long game, Dave. He sees the long game. The long game is that all men would be saved. God is not willing that any would perish, but that all would come to repentance. That's the long game. And a zealous person finds themselves in that role of recognizing, I could be a part of this. I could help other people find Christ and be saved. I could help gain the kingdom for other people. I could be a part of that. I could be on that team. So the first one, zealous believers are, not, are willing to suffer death in any way God sees fit in order to further his kingdom. Number two, a zealous believer encourages those around him to remain faithful. The easiest example of that would be any of the epistles. All of those are Paul, a majority of those are Paul, Peter, encouraging people to remain faithful. Bad guys are going to come. Heretics are going to come. Persecution is going to come. Remain faithful. Remain loyal. Quit sinning. Quit whatever. Repent. Remain faithful. Remain zealous. Keep doing. Keep going. Uh, a good one in the Old Testament, well, like I told you about Deborah and Judges, encouraging Barak, like, man, just go. You got this. You got it. God is on your side. You're going to be fine. Go. And he goes, and he is successful. Elijah and the prophets of Baal, he goes. He stands before uh, that was 400 prophets. So 400 people and one guy. And he stands up say, and he says, you guys are teaching a false doctrine, and we're going to prove it right now. And they set up the, they set up the altars, and then the, the prophets of Baal are unable to make fire come down and consume the altars. And then Elijah talks to the people. He's like, listen, 
These guys are liars and they're a fake and it's a false thing that they're teaching you. Quit trying to follow these guys and follow the one true God. And then the fire comes down and consumes his, his offering. has been soaked with water and so on. He's encouraging the people. He's zealous in that he continues the work no matter the response from the people. It's hard to do. Paul in 2 Timothy, well, first in 2 Timothy, 1 Timothy 6.20, at the end there, he says, Oh, Timothy, guard what was committed to your trust. Timothy, please, be faithful. In 2 Timothy, 1 Timothy, Paul's free. 2 Timothy, Paul's in prison, and it's not looking good. When he writes some of his other prison epistles, he has guests and things like that. When he writes that one to Timothy, he's not, he's just in there by himself. There's no visitation it's cold, wet place. In fact, he tells Timothy to bring him a coat. It's a wet, uh, nasty little hole. In fact, I, I think I told you about this a while back. It had about an 18-inch hole in the ceiling where they lowered the guy down into the hole. Sewage is running across the bottom, and anything that came or went went through the hole in the top. They just lowered it down to you need some food, water, whatever, and other things that people could go by and do whatever they wanted to you down in your hole. And that's where he's at. And he writes this letter to Timothy, and this is what he says to Timothy Without ceasing, in 2 Timothy 1.3, I remember you, I'm sorry, without ceasing, I remember for you, I remember you in my prayers both day and night. He prays ceaselessly for Timothy day and night, remembering him. Why is he telling him that? If he's in prison, why is he telling Timothy, I'm praying for you? You should be praying for me. I'm in prison. But he wants Timothy to continue the battle. He wants his zeal to be contagious and to pour out on the next guy. John encouraging his disciples at the Jordan. Um, uh, Jesus in speaking to, uh, to his disciples, he who hears my word and believes on him who sent me as everlasting life shall not come unto judgment, but is passed from death unto life. He says those who hear, speaking of the spiritually dead, will live. He's like, guys, keep it going. Just because I am killed on the cross, that's just the start. That's not the end. So number three, so number two was uh, a zealous believer encourages those around him to remain faithful. Number three is the zealous believer has an intense hatred of sin. This is, this is a difficult thing in our time because we've been told, and, I, and I've heard it, you've heard it, you've probably said it, you know, God loves the sinner, hates the sin. There is truth in that. It's very sketchy. There's truth in that. God does care for mankind. But God has, is a wrathful God, and he has wrath against his enemies. There's a percentage of people that hate God. God. The Bible calls them God haters. They hate God. And in those, I would say that there is a wrath of God that's revealed among men, and it's revealed on those people. They don't love God. They don't want God. They don't want any part of God. The zealous believer has an intense hatred of sin, as does God. The zealous believer is a truth speaker. John versus the Pharisee in Matthew 3, 7, he calls him a brood of vipers. John versus Herod in Matthew 14, 4. John, talk about speaking truth to power. Everybody likes to throw that one around. John goes to the most highest ranking guy in that neck of the woods, Herod, and he says, um, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. This is like going to whoever, the president in Russia, and you're a Russian citizen, and going to him and saying, what you're doing is wrong. Because you're taking your life in your hands when you do that. When you 
point out sin in another person's life, especially someone that's in authority over you, you're taking a risk. A zealous person doesn't fear the fact that he could be put in prison or even killed because he recognizes that that person that he's telling is lost. And his goal is to lead a man to Christ, not to crush the person, is to show him that he's in defiance of the one true God. John MacArthur had a little thing the other day. It was real good. He was talking about how uh, some of these that had uh, come into office had put their hands on the Bible and sworn to God. And he's like, do not put your hand on God's holy book and swear to a lie. If you're not going to uphold truth and justice and these things, don't put your hand on God's, uh, uh, what's it called, on the ark of God and swear to a lie because you will receive in yourself his wrath. I was like, that's really good. We're quick to do that. I swear to God that such and such happened. If it's not true, don't say it. But onward. So this lowly Jew talking to a high uh, governing Roman official, he's, he's basically going to him and saying, if you put me in prison, you put me in prison. Oh, well. And then later he ends up beheaded for the same thing. So uh, it really shows a lot of boldness. Jesus, when he cleansed the temple, like I was telling you there, Mark eleven fifteen, Paul in Athens, Acts 17, 6. I thought this was real interesting. Paul is looking around. Now, he's been a converted man, and he's looking around Athens. He's really discouraged. It says, Paul's spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. And verse 22 says, men of Athens, I perceive, and he's like, I perceive that you guys are these you know, you're looking for the God, and you even have this idol that's to the unknown God. And I'm here to tell you today who the unknown God is. He's the God of our fathers. He's the God creator. That's the God you're looking for. But it takes great boldness to go before a whole bunch of people who are not necessarily allies and tell them that they're in terrible sin. But a zealous man does not fear the people, and he doesn't fear the king. He fears God, and he wants to speak uh, truth. A zealous believer, zealous believers have a direct connection to the Holy Spirit that allows him to lead in their ministry, their lives. And this is one thing we struggle with in, in, in most cases, most people, I think. Like, well, Dale's job, Jed's job, Dave's job is to go study, and then you bring us the word. And then if we need evangelism done, then we'll send Jed, and then he'll go to wherever. We'll send Dave, he'll go to the rescue mission, and then they'll go, and they'll preach the word over there. And then on Sundays, my job as just Joe Blow guy is to just come in and sit down and then they'll tell me whatever, what they did this week or what I should be doing. And then I have the option to either do it or not do it. But the reality is every believer in Christ is called to a ministry. Every single one. And the, the primary ministry of every single one is evangelism, whether you like that ministry or not. You have a spiritual gift, everyone does, different ones, helping, serving, administration, healing, um, you know, whatever. Whatever your, whatever your spiritual gift is, leading, pastoring, teaching, whatever it is, there's, there's a multitude of gifts, but all of us are called to be ministers of the gospel. So you use your spiritual gift in order to minister the gospel to others, Every single one of us, it's not just my job to give the gospel to other people, to hand out Bible tracts or to do whatever, whatever way you minister. It's every one of us. So I come on Sunday and I study and then I bring you the word that can edify you and exhort you and build you up so that you have the confidence and boldness to go out the door and take the gospel, whatever you heard that day, and present it to someone else. 
And the, the problem that's been is a lot of believers have lost their zeal. Their zeal ends at the door. They are very zealous. They look forward to coming to church on Sunday, maybe. And they come, and they sit down, and they're like, oh, feed me. And then they get fed, and they're like, man, that was good. I'm full. And then they leave, and they never use it. But each one of us is called um, to allow the Holy Spirit to work through us to present the gospel to someone else. Zealous believers have a direct connection to the Holy Spirit that allows him to lead in their ministry. Their lives are their ministries, and your ministry is your life. You can be... Uh, an accountant and be a minister of the gospel. You can be a construction worker. You can be a school teacher. You can be a baseball coach. You can be whatever it is that Warren does. You can be that guy, a dog guy, whatever. You can be whatever, but you're first a minister of the gospel, and then you're a dog guy or a construction guy or a school teacher or whatever. Each one of us has been called into the kingdom for the service of the Most High God. He saved you for your ministry. For you to be a minister of the gospel. So go do that. Elijah and Elisha in 2 Kings 2.15, it says, The spirit of Elijah, these other prophets see the spirit, leave Elijah as he goes up in the, in the fiery chariot and fall on Elisha. Immediately, Elisha has the Holy Spirit that was removed from Elijah as he's now removed from the picture. He's no longer needed, no longer usable on this earth as a minister of the gospel. He's gone. But Elisha's here. Holy Spirit, ching, Elisha, go to work. And he starts doing the same thing. He starts healing. He starts prophesying. He starts ministering. He starts speaking truth to power. Uh, let's see. David in Psalms 51. I wanted to read that to you. David in Psalm 51 has an interesting thing because he's just come off of sinning terribly with uh, Bathsheba. Um, primarily, I mean, I don't know if the Bathsheba sin is worse or the sin where he has Bathsheba's husband killed, but, and then he lies about it. Um, I don't know which is the worst part there, but in Psalm 51, he's very repentant in that, and he's asking God not to forsake him and not to forget him. But look at Psalm 51, um, verse 11, and we'll just read that from 11 to 13. So already he's, he's repented, he's asked God to cleanse him, to make him a new man, to make him usable again. He says, do not cast me away, or do not banish me from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. He's saying, don't treat me like you treated Saul. Saul had sinned against you a couple times and you removed your spirit from Saul and then Saul was completely worthless after that. Lord, please, if anything, just don't take your spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me by your generous spirit. If you notice, spirit is capitalized. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners shall be converted to you. So with the Holy Spirit on him, though he has sinned terribly, he hasn't lost his salvation, he's sinned. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If he cleanses us from all unrighteousness, that means we've been restored to righteousness and we can, again, minister the gospel. I don't care what you got in the past. I read in 1 Timothy this morning where Saul's, or Paul's going down this list of negatives of his past. I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man. He's, he's going through that and he's like, he goes through this other list of fornication and sodomites and and corrupt people and murderers and all these things. And he's like, there's a lot of people went through that in the past. I was this kind of sinner. But now I've been converted, declared righteous by Christ, and now I'm a minister of the gospel. I did it out of ignorance. I didn't know. But now I know I'm not going to do that anymore. Now I'm going to be a minister of the gospel. Just 
in this case right here, I don't care what your past is. I don't care what you've done or what's been done to you. God can use you if you are a believer in Christ, if you have things in the past that are wickedness, the most evil, terriblest thing that you cannot tell anybody about, it's in that closet of deep, dark uh, skeletons where all your skeletons are kept. I don't care what it is. Everyone has that. But the zealous believer does not allow that to hinder him from doing the ministry of the gospel that he's been called to do. Everybody has sin. Everybody. You can look really nice and beautiful here. Everybody's got sin. But God can use you as a minister of the gospel if you will allow him to. Allow his spirit to fill you. Walk in the spirit daily. He'll use you. Do not remove your spirit from me. Then I will teach transgressors your way. If you know that you've been saved, there's been a point where you've turned your back on your old life. I can put my finger on about the time when that happened. And it's really about the time I moved to Tennessee back in 95, 94. 93 or 4 or 5, right in there. I got married in 95. I moved, I got out of the Marine Corps in 93. So somewhere between 93 and 95, I turned my back on my old life and I began to walk a new life. And I began to be filled with God's word. And I began to be filled with his spirit. And I began to live a different way than I lived before. And God began to break the things in me that held me before. And it's a time thing. It didn't happen overnight. It was a growing in sanctification. Sanctification isn't the pixie thing, ding, and you're sanctified. It's a growing thing. You're growing spiritually day by day, growing more mature day by day, and now more usable for the gospel today than I was then. If I was, <laughs> if you'd have seen me in 1993 standing up here, there'd have been fire on me because I've been on fire from God. It'd have been terrible. I'm not the same guy. That's a different guy. That's the old guy. I'm a new guy. He removed those things from me over time. Some of it was over time. If you think about it, Jesus performed no miracles until the Holy Spirit lands on him. Uh, Matthew 3.16 or John 1.32. Peter at, at Pentecost, that's when he really turns it on. That's when he really starts doing these miraculous things, raising people from the dead, causing people to be healed and things like that. Being able to reach huge numbers of people with the gospel that's an anointing of the holy spirit that's pouring out of that guy and it's pouring out on people and they're like man i gotta have what that guy has that guy's got something i don't have it i need that spirit when the spirit's removed from you you're fruitless and you're worthless but when you're filled with the spirit you're very effective you can be a very zealous and effective believer number five the zealous believer has such confidence in his relationship with the father that he can stand before kings or crowds and not fear Elijah goes to Ahab, tells him what a sinning dog he is. Ahab has the power to take his life. Ahab actually repents at one point because of the witness of Elijah. Ahab was one of the most wicked kings Israel ever had, but when Elijah gets done telling him how, how terrible he's been and how he sinned against God, Ahab repents to an extent. Uh, Ahab go, Elisha goes between, before this guy that's fixing to be king. His name is Hazael. And uh, that man, he knows that that guy has the power to take his life. And he tells him, as I look at you, I can see that you're going to torment God's people. And I weep for you, and I weep for my nation because I see who you are. That's 2 Kings 8, 13, if you want to look that up. John, as he goes before Herod and tells him about him having an affair with his brother's wife and actually killing his brother. Jesus, as he goes before Pilate, he goes before Herod. Peter, as he goes before one counselor or another, the Sanhedrin, the governors, and all the different people. Um, Paul, 
uh, as he passes from Jerusalem, as he goes to every country, time and again, Paul gets called before governors and has to speak to them and tell them about the hope that's within him and the hope that they can have if they'll repent. In some cases they do, in some cases they don't. But all along the way, he maintains his energy because he knows what he's doing is covered by the righteousness of God and he's being filled with the Spirit. So he's doing it in a correct manner. So I know that's a long list, um, and, uh, but the key thing, if I had to pick, and Pete, you said it this morning, you didn't even know it. I was going to tell you then, but I'm going to tell you now in front of all these people. So you won't be able to get your hat on when you go home today because your head's going to swell. But Pete said the word today, and the word is boldness. Zealousness is boldness. The zeal builds a boldness in us that gives us the energy to uh, preach the word in season and out of season, to have a word ready, to be thinking about other people and seeing them in their fallen state and be concerned about them and worried that that person is going to die without Christ. And when he does, he's going to be cast into outer darkness. We talked to a lady at the rescue mission, and, and we told her that. Um, she was very skeptical. And I was like, well, here's the option. Heaven or cast into the outer darkness, hell. And she's like, oh, I really hadn't really thought about that. You better think about it. That's your option. Many people, and, and there's been some pastors of late that have preached against you know, this so-called doctrine of hell. The doctrine of hell is this. Jesus told us that there's an outer darkness, and there's a hell, and there's the potential that you could go there if you don't know him. That's a scary thing. So to withhold that from someone when you're trying to talk to them about a serious thing like their spiritual life is a terrible thing on your part. It's wickedness. You're like, well, I can true. Well, you know, I could tell you about hell, but you know, you don't really want to talk about that. Talk about it. It's terrible. Tell them about it. Tell them that the option is you either accept Christ, I am the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father but through me. No one. There's no other way under heaven given among men by which you must be saved. There's no other way. Christ, that's it. And everything else is hell. And apparently, as I was reading, there's actually levels of that. And uh, I don't even want to go to level one, or maybe level one's the bottom. Level 10, whatever the level, whatever the best level, I don't want to go there, let alone the worst level. So be sure to tell friends, families, neighbors, others, about the hope that's within you because you're saving them from an eternal separation from God. They think they got it going on. And like we were talking about with this lady, is you've got to help them see the long game. This life ends at the very best 100 years. At the very best, in the last 15 years of the 100 years, is terrible. Probably in a nursing home eating through a tube. It's not that great. So what about from 100 years plus a day on? That's the part that matters. We need to be preparing people for that. There's always an awareness of the fact that you could die or you could be ashamed or you could be embarrassed. Uh, but boldness is fearlessness of men. That's what boldness is. You know you got to do the right thing and sometimes you just got to step out there and do it. It's never really usually as bad as you think it's going to be and you can always go home and lick your wounds. But um, my favorite... My favorite Latin saying, one of the few that I know, Fortes Fortunus Juvat. I like it because that was the uh, motto of uh, uh, 2nd Battalion, 3rd Marines. That was my unit I was in. Fortune favors the bold. Fortune favors the bold. If you want the victory, you've got to be bold. If you want the cookie, you've got you to reach for it. If you want the prize, you've got to do what it takes to do it. You've got to charge in there, and you've got to do it. Be bold in witnessing to others. Um, you want to see people saved? 
I, I talked to this man the other day and he said, oh yeah, this guy's a great evangelist. Everywhere he goes, he just puts out Bible tracts. He doesn't talk to people. Talk to people. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. It doesn't say faith comes by Bible tract and Bible tract and then hearing and then the word of God. Faith comes by hearing. You've got to speak the word of life to people. You can put a Bible tract in their hand, but talk to them. Man, I, I'm having trouble explaining this to you the best I know how, but, but maybe you could read this, but I'm telling you that there is hope beyond this day. You're going to die. It's appointed once for man to die, and then the judgment. Tell them something. Then give them the Bible tract. <laughs> give them the Bible tract, but don't let that be the speech. Use your words. Use your personality. Use the spirit that, that lives within you to relate to that person, to encourage them. How will they hear without a preacher? You're the preacher. You say, no, Dale, you're the preacher. No, you're the preacher. Foretell. Begin foretelling the word. Begin to speak the word. That's what the preacher does. You can do it. So how can we up our zealousness factor? I'm going to call it the ZF. I'll ask you how your ZF is. It's not a, it's a, not a pill you can take. I, I came down to two things, and this is from reading the book of Acts primarily, and they're kind of the same thing. But there's got to be something in us that triggers us to to be more zealous for God. There's got to be something that encourages us to be more outspoken with the gospel. And for me and for you, I would hope that these things would be those. The first one is recognize the personal importance of our own salvation. I don't think often that we, we consider that. Mark was telling me a while back about how he sometimes just kind of dwells on the fact of, of these, are the, these are the things that I've done in the past. These are the things God saved me from. He goes, he does, I just feel a sense of repentance come over me and just um, sorrow for, for what I haven't done. But it also encourages him to move forward from that day. Look at Hebrews 13. Hebrews 13, uh, 20 and 21. It's talking about you know, just how a moral believer should live there. Hebrews 13, 20. And he's encouraging these people to get on it. You know you've been saved. You recognize that Jesus is the perfect sacrifice. You recognize that he was the one. He did the work. And remembering that, now may the God of peace who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you complete in every good work to do his will, working in you what is well-pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Make you complete in every good work to do his will. The work that God did when he sent his son, and then I was telling the guys this morning, at some point, I think, Pete, was it your parents? Who led you to Christ? Was it your parents? It was in church. Pastor's daughter led Pete. Who, um, Isaac, who, who led you to Christ? Uh, uh, just a guy that you have in here. How many? Whose parents led him to Christ? Anybody? A couple back there. Yeah, the Isaac, the Ostrander clan over here. They're all like, "We did. Dad baptized us too." That's good. All right. So somebody, their parents, a person from church. I know with my kids, it was a lady from um, Central led a couple of them to to Christ. With my sister, she came to us one came with us one time. We went to Central, and this lady led one of her daughters to Christ. So whoever led you to Christ, they were doing exactly what it says right here. They made you complete in every good work to do his will. They were doing his will. Somebody, because you're here today, whether you're here today and you would consider yourself saved or whether you would consider yourself not saved, whatever, some person influenced you to come here today to hear 
the words of life. And you need to be that person to somebody else. That's how God's kingdom is designed to be grown. It's a crazy thing. That's not what I would have come up with. But that's what God comes up with, and he says that's the way to do it. And he says that that's his will for you. To be complete, to do his will, is to lead others to Christ. Not just lead them, not get a bunch of new babies and then leave them on the doorsteps of churches, but to disciple them from there and to grow them in the, in the spiritual knowledge of God. So do you realize that what you've been saved from, you do, I hope you do, eternal separation from God and hell and those things we just talked about. Um, so believe the book. He redeemed you and he's in the process of making you kingdom ready. And in that, you're to make others kingdom ready. Number two is recognize the gift is to the Jew first. This is a thing that really struck me this week, Acts 17. Um, the Bible says that God has a people, and you're not it. God's chosen people are the Israelites. Those are his people. He calls them his people. They're his chosen people. But like I was telling these guys this morning, he called out his people from Egypt, and those, it says, of the mixed multitudes came with them. So all these Joe Blows, these Gentile Syrians, Africans, Ethiopians, and whatever that were all there, enslaved and whatever, that were there, they were like, God's got these people. I'm on that guy's side. I just saw him crush Pharaoh ten different ways, literally. And now he's taking them out, and there's fire, and there's smoke, and there's you know, death angels and jazz. I'm with him. And they go with him. And those people have every right that the Israelites have they have one little part there where they can't get into the innermost part of the, of the Holy of Holies and the, and the second part of the temple there. But for the most part, they have everything allotted to them that God's people has because they're attached to God's people. They're adopted. You've got to recognize how special it is to be adopted. Only a person that's not adopted can, I mean, only a person that's adopted truly, adopted in a family like our man Moe's here or whatever, they can understand. They'll understand, Alan Rowe, what it is to be adopted. My cousin, who was uh, born in Korea uh, and lived there till he was five, was just, he was adopted by a country family out in Kansas. And uh, that guy loves his parents. I mean, loves them. He's 40, he's about 50 now, 48 or so. And he still sits on his dad's lap. His dad's 80-year-old man, 78-year-old man. He loves his parents. His other brothers and sisters, the natural-born kids, they come in, hey, Dad, good to see you. David comes in there and sits on his daddy's lap because he knows. He's been to Korea since then. He knows what he was adopted into. He was saved, man. He was adopted in. It's a big deal. We take it very lightly, our salvation. But God didn't have to accept us, but he does. When we recognize what we've been saved from, it gives us a zeal to go do for. Amen. God saved us. He saved me. Jesus saved me. If you knew what I was, you would be surprised too. But he saved you, and I'm surprised he saved you. You're a Gentile. You're a lowly, filthy Gentile. You have no part of him, and yet he made a way. Somebody came to you and told you about the hope that was within them, and then you recognized your need for a Savior, and you came, and he saved you, and he adopted you in, and he made you his children. Look at Acts 17, 24. God, he's talking. Uh, Paul is talking to this group of people. 
He's had to go to the Gentiles because the Jews won't hear it. God who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshiped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives life to all breath and all things. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth. All men. There's no black men. There's no white men. There's no Mexican men. They're men. You're a man. You're created in the image of God. You have one DNA, the DNA of a man. And has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwelling. So we're all men, but we're all put in different places on the earth, wherever we are. We could be a different color. Doesn't make us not a man. So that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him. Oh, grope for him. That's like a blind guy, my brother-in-law, blind. You move the furniture, it's a funny trick. He falls all over it. Because he comes in, he always tests and see where the furniture is first. And then he knows when he first comes into a room, and then he'll remember that. So if you want to play a fun game with my blind brother-in-law, you just move the furniture around. And then he falls over the stuff. That, that's us. We're falling over the furniture trying to find God. He makes a way. He sends somebody. He's like, hey, watch out. Use this stick. Lead, get this person to lead you around and lead you to him. He does it. He's doing the work. He makes a way for us to find him, though he is not far from each one of us. He's right there. For in him we live and move and have our being. Truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. We have the opportunity, a great opportunity, to help other blind people not fall over the furniture. We can lead them directly to the throne if we'll do it. So how does a modern-day zealot of the Most High God act then? He seeks God more actively. Philippians 2.12 says, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That's kind of one of those scary verses like, Make your calling and election sure. Make sure that you're saved. Because a lot of us... We've done a really good job of reading Christian books or singing Christian songs or whatever, but we've never reckoned our own sin as wickedness and that we are completely separated from God for eternity unless Christ does a work in us. If we have no desire to tell someone else the gospel, then work out your salvation with fear and trembling. If we have no desire to see another person saved, if we harbor a lot of hate and anger and discord amongst other people, if we can't quit lying and stealing and being greedy and all the other things that the Bible describes as wickedness, if we can't get over that, then work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Make sure of your calling and your election. Make sure that you're right. Um, those that are his are going to daily seek God's will. They're going to do it through prayer, through reading, and, uh, and then also through the working and using your spiritual gift. If you have no desire to use your spiritual gift, if you feel a lot of people during this COVID era have really been frustrated because they haven't been able to come together with other believers, that's a really good sign that you're saved. To desire to be with other of God's people, that's a really good sign. To desire to serve those people, that's an even better sign. So he seeks him more actively. The second thing is he watches for God's moving and joins in. One of the things I learned from Pastor Tony I thought was good, and I've tried to do it myself, um, is see where God's working and go there. He would hear of a revival. He did this a couple, at least three times that I know of. He heard of a revival in Russia. He had a full-time job. He's like, honey, put the kids in the car. We're going to Russia. They went to Russia and began to work with, with indigenous people there and leading people to the gospel and things like that when the wall fell in Russia. He did the same thing in Argentina, a, thing, a door opened down there. Uh, they heard about this movement of the Holy Spirit down there, a large number of people being saved. Get in the car, kids. We're going to Argentina. Go see what God's doing and get involved. Try something. I was talking to Charles this morning. 
try something. He got up here, he tried the guitar. He's going to try working with uh, young people and start speaking to them. Try different things. You'll find what your spiritual gift is as you begin to try things. See what's working and then go do it. A great spot is the rescue mission. Go down there and see those people. You don't have to convince those people that they're sinners. They got it. You don't have to convince them that they're low down and dirty. They understand that. They need hope. And you go start speaking to them about hope, and they're like, thank you for coming. We're so glad you came. And you can come here week after week, and you rarely hear that. But you can go there, and I promise you somebody will tell you, thank you for coming. I appreciate the word that you gave. That was good. I really needed to hear that. Thank you. Hey, would you pray for me about this? Would you pray for me about that? Would you lead me to Christ? Could you tell me who the Savior is? They'll tell you. They'll ask you. I have a terrible problem with drugs or with alcohol or with my kids won't talk to me. and all. It's the same stuff that happens in here. But we keep it on the down low. We've got our nice clothes on. But you go to the rescue mission, man, that's a great place to see God work. He'll work, and he'll use you. The modern zealot rejoices in affliction. He sees the negatives in life as opportunities to witness to others. In sickness, they go to, I always hear about these people um, that end up in the hospital, you know, they're dying of this or that, and then talks about how the nurses were encouraged by the witness of this person that's on their deathbed. That's a zealous person. That's a good thing. And last, he looks for those who need the gospel. Like I was telling you about the mission. Um, it's just a great place to go to be able to, to meet people. You don't have to go door knocking or anything like that. You can go there. Those people are searching for God, and they're all there in one place. And they'll take it in your mo however you're capable of speaking or acting. If you want to cook for them, if you want to serve them, if you want to bring them clothes, if you want to talk to them on the street, there's ladies there, there's men there. If you want to, it's a good place to, to practice your skills. I was kind of thinking about this picture of zeal for the church as a whole. And I know this is, this is the team we got right here. This is our team. Jed's the team. Dave's the team. You're the team members. This is the team. We're not exchanging this team for nothing. This is the team we got. So this team has to make it happen. And zeal in Cumberland County. This is our team. This is the team that God has chosen to put together. And it reminded me of the Coast Guard. Every person on the little Coast Guard boat has to do all the jobs on the boat. You're not just the cook on the Coast Guard boat. You're the cook, the diesel mechanic, the electrician, the machine gun operator. You're the works. You do everything. Um, and, uh, and from what I understand, they get about as much action as anything, They're all, as, any, as any service group, as far as um, they're chasing down pirates and human traffickers and drug traffickers and all that. Um, they're out in the sea in rough waters. Um, there's always danger. They're looking for people that they can rescue and save. And they're a team of helpers. They're all on the same team looking to accomplish the same mission to either save people from dangers of the sea, perils of the sea, or perils from whatever, trafficking or pirates or whatever. That's the goal of the Coast Guard. They're having adventures while they're saving lives. And you need to look at yourself in zeal. That's the way to look at yourself as a believer. Having an adventure while saving somebody's life. You have the opportunity every now and then in a little danger that makes it exciting and uh, just preach while you're running. But just be an evangelist and be zealous. We're on the right team. We need to break from this lukewarmness. The Bible says to repent of your lukewarmness and uh, be revived unto zeal, okay? I want to give you the opportunity this morning just to, to pray together. If, we want to, if you want to pray right there, if you, if you have something you want to discuss afterwards, I'll be here. I would love to have time to, to talk with you about the different things you've got going on in your life. In this time of prayer... Well, we just have some silent prayer here at first, and then in that, just say, God, reveal to me what needs to change that I can have this refreshed heart of zeal. Give to me the spirit of encouragement for someone else. Give me the gift of 
evangelism. Give me the boldness to be an evangelist. Work on my spirit to talk to other people that I know. There's somebody that you're thinking of, somebody that you know, somebody that you've run across lately that needs to hear the gospel. I met a man the other day. I was working on an air conditioner, and this, this man was an air conditioner repair guy. And in talking to him, he had no idea who a God was. It's really surprising to meet someone like that around here, but no idea. And I asked him about that. He's like, yeah, I've thought about that before. And I start trying to give him the gospel. And he got real cold. The, the walls started going up real fast. I said, you know what, man? Why don't you try and just pick the Bible up and read it? If nothing else, for your family, for you, your grandkids. I said, there's going to come a day when you're going to die. And you're going to want to know what happens then. He's like, okay. Just tell them what you can tell them. Do the very best you can in your own words. But as we come this time of silent prayer, work on that first. Ask God to give you boldness and zeal in your Christian walk. And I'll pray and we'll close. Father, this morning as we come together and, and read your word and study your word together, Lord, I pray that it wouldn't just be a thing that we read about or heard about or thought about, but it'll be a life-changing conviction of spirit that'll drive us to obedience. I pray, I'm praying for others, I pray for myself, Lord, asking forgiveness for the things that I've done in the past that have kept other people from glimpsing your glory, because I've told them I was a Christian, but I didn't act that way at one time or another, Lord. Lord, I pray that my my personal walk would not hinder someone else from achieving the gospel, Lord. Father, I pray for boldness on this body, Lord. This is a good team of people. They're good people. They're seeking your face, Lord. They're, they're desiring to do your will, Lord. I pray that you give them a renewed sense of boldness and zeal in their heart and their spirit, that they would desire to serve you with their whole heart, that they would become alive again and renewed in spirit to read your word and to care for others more highly than themselves. I thank you, Lord, for your goodness to us on this place. I thank you for the weather. I know that, uh, you know, it's been cold, it's been snowy, but we have this nice warm place to meet inside. We're grateful for that, Lord. I'm grateful for those that are here today. Um, maybe this is a, a different way than they've ever heard the gospel before, Lord. I pray that it convicts their spirit this morning and that they search their heart and make sure that they do, in fact, know you, that they do, in fact, know Jesus as their Savior. They recognize that he came he lived a sinless life and he died on their behalf, a sacrifice, and paid a price that they couldn't pay. But he didn't stay dead. He rose again the third day and he sits today making intercession for us. He's not willing that any would perish, but that all would come to repentance. Lord, I pray that if there's some today that need to repent, Lord, that today would be the day of their salvation. Have mercy on us, Lord. We've sinned in multiple ways and we, we can't even put our finger on top of all of them. And, we read your word and it convicts us, Lord. And we thank you for that, Lord, that you show us what you want from your kingdom people. Thank you, Lord, for your care for us. Thank you for these that are here. We pray for those that are not. I pray that we'd be bold witnesses this week. In Jesus' name, amen. We have plenty of food, uh, so please stay and eat with us. That's one of the best times we have to, to get to know you and to have fellowship with you and to hear of your different issues and problems. And if you've got something you want to pray about this morning, come up here. I'd be glad to talk to you. I'll stay as long as you want to talk. God bless you all. Go and be bold.